There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon, everybody, on this uh, summery Wednesday, and welcome to the Afternoon Buzz. Hello, Dan Torres. Good afternoon, Buzz. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Had a good morning. Um, yeah? Outside. In the garden? Uh, well, actually, I was in the field. I was mowing and chainsawing and sweating, and sweat feels good. It does, doesn't it? Summer days. Summer days, yeah. It's a nice, lazy day. Mm-hmm. So I am excited about today's show. I'm particularly excited because I'm going to be reconnected with a very good old friend who I think uh, uh, I'll introduce listeners to in a moment if they don't know him. Um, but uh, what we're going to talk about, what we're going to start talking about is there was a recent analysis conducted by CAP, the Center for American Progress, and LEAP, the Law Enforcement Action partnership that found that only 18 to 33 percent of calls that are made to uh, police uh, in uh, a large number of departments, both rural and urban, actually involved life-threatening kind of emergencies. But 23 to 39 percent, 23 to 39 percent are either low priority or non-urgent calls, um, which is consistent with um, this notion that there are quality of life and other low-priority incidents where people might call 911 may require a time-sensitive response, but they're better suited to civilian responders rather than armed police officers, which could go a long way towards eliminating the nightmare that we have of uh, police-involved shootings um, when they're responding and when they um, suspect that their own safety is uh, that they're imperiled and as a result we end up with somebody on the ground um and a lot of communities in the, the front page of the recorder today um and i was actually talking to the police chief of ashfield my hometown um this morning uh shelburne goshen colrain conway plainfield row heath monroe and holly are all going to be beneficiaries of a hundred a two hundred thousand dollar state grant to fund a mental health clinician who's going to respond alongside police officers to certain kinds of emergency situations. Um, in your town, Dan, yes, there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion right now because yesterday there was a swearing-in of uh, members of what's called CRESS, Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Services. It's a, an important new development in Amherst, and here to discuss it with us um, are the president of Amherst Town Council, Lynn Griesmer, and uh, Andy Steinberg, the chair of the Finance Committee. Uh, hello, Lynn. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Oh, it's really nice to have you here, and thank you for, for joining us. Andy, hello. Hi, Buzz. By way long of, time that I've seen you. Yes, by way of disclosure, I was about to say, Andy Steinberg, as the extraordinary executive director of uh, Western Mass Legal Services for a very long time, I was on that board for almost just shy of 25 years, including as its president, and I don't think there were too many weeks that passed when you and I didn't have a conversation or two, Andy, right? No, it was, you were one of those presidents It's wonderful to have as board president because we were able to constantly be in communication and always be in sync on what our plans were going forward. Well, and a lot of what we learned about it comes out in the CREST program, incredibly, as it seems. Yes, and a, a lot of what I ended up saying is I agree with Andy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been too long since I've seen him, and I hope to see him, but it's nice to have a telephonic communication with him. But meanwhile... Lynn, would you tell us about CRESS? Uh, why is Amherst doing it and what is Amherst doing? So, like many communities in across the country, 
uh, particularly with the murder of George Floyd, uh, Amherst formed a committee called the Community Safety Working Group, uh, our CSWG, uh, to look at our options, if you will, regarding a um, police response or a non-uniformed, non-gun-carrying response. And out of that came the recommendation to form CRESS. Uh, this has been a year and a half in the process. Uh, we were very fortunate, like you and like your community, to also get a state grant to support this, as well as significant money that the town is putting forward as well. And so we hired our, exec our director of CRESS back in March, and Earl Miller, who just, I mean, he walks the walk and he talks the talk, and he's lived the world. And if you have not interviewed him, I truly encourage you that at some point. Um, he has come on, he's uh, with the help of other people within town government, has hired an amazing team of nine other people, a coordinator and eight responders. And yesterday we had the privilege of watching all of them being sworn in as employees of the town of Amherst, along with our diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, director and assistant director. So both of these efforts are really two responses to trying to make Amherst a town for all people, not just uh, students, not just longtime residents, not just um, older people, but younger people and BIPOC people, and really doing it in a way that creates much more, many more avenues, if you will, for responding to different people's needs. Um, and I think the statistics you quoted earlier from the LEAP report and so forth is, are very, very right on. So Amherst is looking forward to this. It is a collaborative effort with our police and our fire department as and the EMS department as well. So um, although it's a there'll be some level of co-response, it's actually a separate first responder unit in the town of Amherst. So I don't know which of you wants to take this question, but um, whichever one thinks it's uh, you're appropriate, please do. It's hard for me to envision how it works in real time. That is. A 911 dispatcher gets a call and finds out it might involve a mental health issue or a substance abuse or a, something like a truancy or just a wellness check for somebody. How does it? Who's going to make the decision about whether a police officer is going to, an armed police officer is going to respond versus uh, a trained representative of CRESS? Which one of you can answer that? Do you want me to go, Andy? Go ahead. <laughs> I'll start. So in the process of developing a program, which is still in process, and I think it's important that we all keep our minds open about what ultimately it might look like. Uh, the uh, implementation team has included our uh, response people where, you know, you dial nine, you dial 911 and you get a response and that response team, the call center, directs the call. And based on what they're hearing in the call, will allow you to then decide, do you send out just a crest person? Because it looks like it's a nonviolent situation. It might be a homeless person that's having some difficulty. Or do you send out a crest person along with backup from maybe both police and EMS, depending on what the situation might be like. And so it's really been important to work so closely with the call center. And I say that we have not yet sent the first CRESS responder out. Mm. And in fact, they're about, they're going through two months of training starting late yesterday. And, uh, but come September, we will have our CRESS people on the road. And they're really working through many of these very kinds of scenarios. For example, a domestic abuse situation can often become violent. So it's not necessarily something where a crest person would go in alone, 
but a crest person might be there as part of the team that helps deal with the situation at hand. Right, to de-escalate the situation. Exactly. Somebody trained in de-escalation. And all the, of course, the, the backdrop for all of this is building community trust and um, having a community that's willing to uh, accept mediation as a possible way to resolve disputes or um, the like, right? Um, Andy, I, yep. I'd like to ask you, as the chair of the finance committee, um, do you see a financial, once this grant is done, is what's going to be the financial consequences to... Actually, I'd like to withdraw that question and just preface it a little bit more. Greenfield just uh, gave the police department in Greenfield, after a, a verdict found a discriminatory uh, act on the part of uh, the Greenfield Police Department, they, the, the council there gave $425,000 le less in the budget um, to the Greenfield Police Department than it had gotten the previous year. What do you think the consequences financially to the town of Amherst are going to be of press? We have been very careful in developing a budget plan that uh, uses the grant money that we received for startup expenses and equipment expenses, getting the space ready and um, getting appropriate uh, vehicles for the response teams to use and um, other similar costs, but have kept the salaries, worked that into the budget so that when we go forward in future years, um, it's in the budget along with the other departments. Um, the I know in Northampton, it, it was similar to what happened in Greenfield. The decision was made by a council to institute a substantial uh, reduction in funding for the police department. We chose not to do that. We uh, did um, eliminate two officer positions that were vacant, but um, that was it. And uh, so we wanted, because we wanted to maintain the strength of our police department. And by building the budget without um, having to reduce any, um, making any major reductions, um, we feel that we're in a as comfortable a position as you can be in this day and age going forward with uh, maintaining all of our public safety programs and the confidence of the three public safety arms, actually four, including the dispatch service, to work closely with each other and to support each other. Um, that, I think, is the key element to what we did that we feel is unique and we're very proud of. As well, you should be. I, I saw the, the article in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, which is above the, the fold on page one, um, on page seven, I'm looking right now, it says another joining Cress, and it's describing um, uh, Vanessa Phillips. But it says with the unionized positions paying between 45000 and $61,000, depending on experience levels, are all of Cress's positions going to be union positions? Uh, I'll, I'll pause only in that um, I'm not sure about the director since um, executive level positions are traditionally in, in municipal government not, but all of the responders are, and we felt that it was very important that they uh, become part of the one of the bargaining units within the town right from the beginning before we've been hired um, in order to create the kind of confidence um, in the commitment that we're making to make to this program and relationships. Uh, it was just a, a early um, forward thinking approach to make sure that this is going to have every chance of um, success, including building the confidence between the town and our newest employees that we are committed to this and we are in this together to make it work. Well, that's a great place to take a break, and we are going to take a break. We have been talking, we'll continue to talk to President uh, Lynn Griesmer of the 
uh, Amherst Town Council and the chair of the finance committee of the Amherst Town Council, Andy Steinberg. We are talking about um, we're talking about public safety, and we're talking about an uh, awareness and acknowledgement on the part of Amherst, uh, which is sort of leading the country here in Western Massachusetts in acknowledging that public safety requires that the community uh, can expect that whoever comes to respond to a call isn't going to be literally loaded for bear, but is going to be um, looking to de-escalation, looking to uh, mediate, looking to first aid, looking to equity awareness, and things other than just let's arrest a bad guy. We'll be back in a minute with Andy and Lynn. Please stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere, Gros Monsang. Gros, apparently, when you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Gros. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do make sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like, it's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah, band name. Don't great. steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. <laughs> we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after dinner. Because it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's wine. very different. 1899. It is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Perre. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. Co-op. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you, but our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forest of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Welcome back to the Afternoon Buzz. I'll tell you something. As a news junkie, it gets weary because it gets uh, worse, followed by worse followed by worse, but not true in Amherst lately. I'll tell you, I, uh, I've had a great time going a few times to the Drake. Yeah. The new... I went there with you. Yes, you did. And it's a great performance venue. People should really use it. It really, in there, you're right in the heart of Amherst, and it's free without a cover charge. And uh, you're allowed to bring in food from one of the other, other local establishments. It's terrific. I had a great experience each time I've gone and I think everybody will. Um, and we just talked about CRESS, this community responders, um, that 
uh, are aimed at equity and safety and providing service, uh, public safety in a in a way that services people doesn't just isn't just punitive. Well, there's also an elementary school building project that you have going on. Um, Lynn Griesmer, the president of the town council, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So as we all came on to the council in December of 2018, uh, there are there were and still are four major building projects on our docket. Uh, Amherst has not built a new building in a long time. Uh, the first is the Jones Library and the money for that. And uh, it's off and running with a terrific committee. And uh, they have received a grant from the state and they're also doing a lot of fundraising as well as money from the town. The next one on the docket is the Amherst, uh, is the elementary school. And that in fact is chaired by one of our fellow counselors, Kathy Shane, and his other people who represent the schools and the community on it. They have looked at preliminary designs. They've come up with a preliminary cost estimate. And we are in the process of working with the Mass School Building Authority at the state level to see how much of that building they will pay for. And then based on that, we will decide how and when we are going to go out for a debt exclusion override in order to pay for the remainder of the building. Uh, the building itself will cover K to actually fifth grade because we're moving our sixth grade into our middle school and it will consolidate two of our three elementary schools although there may be some other reproportioning based on school enrollment but the two schools that it will replace are the um, Fort River Elementary School and Wildwood and so we hope that the council will get some preliminary estimates no later than the beginning of this coming December and we hope to go out to the public and ask for a debt exclusion override, which means they will pay additional taxes uh, in order to build this new elementary school. That override would probably be sometime in March of 2023, and the school itself would be occupied by 2026. And so those are the two of the four projects. Well, let me, let me stop and talk about that one because I, I was reading... Um, a little bit about it. I, I want to throw this to Andy after I just mentioned the mission that I read about the, this project to build this elementary school is to build an excellent elementary school that's that supports child-centered education, meets diverse educational needs of our children in daylight-filled rooms, uses outdoors for not just play but also education, and does so in a cost-effective green building that incorporates net zero energy principles. It, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because it's exactly what a school building should look like. And now I turn to the chair of the finance committee, town councilor, Andy Steinberg. What can people expect in terms of their tax bill? Um, you know, that's a difficult question to answer right now because there are factors that we don't yet know about what are going to be the financing costs at the time because we made projections initially uh, that was a very reasonable sum but uh, the un unfortunate circumstances that borrowing costs for everybody including for municipalities seeking to bond long-term debt are increasing um, so we actually are waiting for an updated analysis from our finance director who is uh, going to present to us on July 19 um, his updated um, estimates. Um, so I would hesitate to make a statement to the public now in advance of getting that information. Um, just real quickly because um, I have uh, adult children who went to Fort River School when it was very new and they were both built about the same time. And uh, I'm, you know, I think that there were some mistakes made at the time. They were built in an open classroom. 
set up that is in, not conducive to current education. They don't have the space for um, the kinds of special needs that exist now for so many students that um, just were not provided at the time it was built. So the buildings don't have the space they need for individualized instruction. Um, they're unhealthy settings because they were built on what's known as slab construction cement. Uh, one of them, actually both buildings, being a fairly wet ground. So they've, um, they've always been health challenges that have gone with those buildings. And uh, we have had a long-term interest in doing what we're now uh, on the brink of doing, and that is to replace these two buildings with some, uh, with one building that is going to provide the kind of education and um, environmental commitment that is appropriate for the 21st century. This is Dana. I just had a quick question here before we wrap up uh, this segment. Um, you said uh, when the, uh, the new school is built, it will cover kindergarten to fifth grade. However, the sixth graders will move on to the middle school. So my question is, is the middle school capable of absorbing the entire sixth grade? Yes, yes. because um, the one thing that has happened all across uh, the Commonwealth and uh, Amherst is not unique to this at all, is declining enrollment. So that the enrollment numbers are less, which enables us to build a building that was actually designed for uh, a little bit smaller population to begin with than was um, in the two prior envisioned for the two prior buildings. But the middle school has also declined substantially. And when the middle school was built, it was actually um, a junior high school covering three grades and uh, it now covers only two. So there is definitely sufficient space. Well, um, we are, unfortunately, we're uh, out of time for this segment, but I want to tell you, I, I am, it's so uplifting to hear, I know the pressures on local governments are so great these days and the needs are enormous and their resources are scarce. But it seems to me that Amherst, uh, you and your council um, are looking forward. You're looking to the future and you're trying to build an educational facility that will com accommodate the modern needs of um, educators and the students that they serve and um, the public safety needs of a community uh, that is uh, diverse and uh, recognizes um, past practices are not uh, sufficient to meet the needs of citizens. So I want to congratulate you both. I think that I've really enjoyed talking to you, President Lynn Griesmer, and you, Chair of the Finance Committee, Andy Steinberg, and I'm going to hound you to come back on the show again because uh, uh, it's great to be talking to you and uh, to hear more about what's going on in Amherst. So thank you both. Thank you each for joining us today. Thank Bye. you. Great. Thanks. Good luck in your endeavors. We are going to be right back with Nan Parati's. Uh, we've got an interesting thing going on today. We'll be right back after these messages. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. There are eight new public safety responders in Amherst. They're part of the new CRESS program, the Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service. CRESS is a partnership with the Amherst Police Department, whose mission is to provide community safety services in situations that don't involve violence or serious crime. CRESS creates a civilian unarmed alternative to calls that might otherwise require a response from the police department. Senator Joe Comerford spoke ahead of a vote to pass her bill, the Foster Parents' Bill of Rights, last week. The bill would regulate the information available to foster parents, improve access to training, and provide other forms of support to strengthen the foster care system in Massachusetts. The rights of foster parents are dispersed among a set of laws and regulations, DCF policies, procedures, and sometimes undocumented historic practices. The result can be a maze of rules and parameters that sometimes are inconsistently applied.
The bill also prioritizes maintaining relationships in children's lives, both biological and otherwise. And a group of Hilltowns will be sharing a mental health clinician to respond to emergency situations alongside police. Ashfield, Buckland, Shelburne, Goshen, Colerain, Conway, Plainfield, Rowe, Heath, Monroe, and Hawley will all share in the services. A grant of close to $200,000 was awarded to the towns on June 14th by the Department of Mental Health. Deerfield, Greenfield, and Montague all joined together and received a similar grant to support co-response services in May of last year. Mostly sunny and breezy this afternoon, a high of 82 to 86. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low 52 to 58. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 78 to 82. There is a chance for a late afternoon shower. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. Summer is here, and it's not too late to get the kids into some local summer activities. Join Junior Achievement of Western Mass President Jennifer Connolly to hear available summertime options, Saturday at 9.30, here on WHMP. Martha Graham, Mum and Shants, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Shants in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the lost Graham masterwork, Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. No, it isn't. This is an interesting thing with Nan Parati. Hi, Hi, Nan. Hey, how are you guys? I'm sorry I just blew your head off with uh, by adjusting your microphone. A uh, little That's too okay. loud. That's okay. I'm, I'm, I can handle it now. Yeah, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited. I want to jump into this because I'm so excited. John Elstrott is a friend of mine. We've been friends since about 1984 when he was the chairman of the board of Whole Food Company before Whole Foods Market, then became the chairman of the board of Whole Foods Market, this is the most important person I've ever had on this show. I'm wow, so excited. I am impressed. I know it. So, John, how are you? I'm well, man. Thank you. <laughs> and one of the very cool things about John, which also makes him so important in the world, is he's always doing great stuff for the world. And he's really outdoing himself this time. John, what are you doing this time? Tell me. I've been reading about it, but tell me all about it. Well, I'm uh, focused these days and probably for the rest of my days on regenerative agriculture, restoration, ecology, and food products made from regeneratively grown ingredients. Wow. Can you talk more about how, first of all, where did this come from? I mean, how did you get involved and what exactly are you doing? Are you planting or what are you doing? Well, we're working with farmers. They're doing the planting. Mm -hmm. uh, I got involved in uh, restoration ecology uh, 25 years ago uh, when me and three partners uh, started uh, initially with a wetland mitigation banking business mm -hmm. uh, and, and that involved buying and restoring uh, wetlands, uh, putting them under a conservation servitude so they couldn't ever be developed again, uh -huh. and storing the uh, plant, uh, original plant and animal uh, flora and fauna. Uh, and this was a, a business based on a, a federal regulation that came in with the Clean Water Act, actually under President Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, which said that there would be no net loss of wetlands going forward in the United States. This was back in the 70s. And so anytime a developer would, uh, of any kind, whether they were building a highway, a subdivision, a parking lot, uh, whatever, if they were going to impact and destroy a wetland, 
within the same watershed, they would have to buy credits, which meant that an uh, equal or greater amount of wetlands within the same watershed were restored and put under a conservation servitude to offset the damage. Uh-huh. Anyway, it got me in the restoration ecology business. I've been in it ever since. Uh, we've done projects uh, all over the United States, all over the world, uh, buying and restoring land and uh, generating wetland mitigation credits, uh, nutrient credits, which are credits for uh, mitigating uh, storm drain runoff or agricultural runoff into rivers and wetlands, uh, endangered species credit, restoring habitat for, for endangered species. Uh, and in the process of doing all this restoration work, we would have to use native plants because uh, you're restoring the original plant, plant life. Uh-huh. Uh, and it turns out a lot of these plants were uh, based, the basis for the Native American Indian diet. Uh, we now have a seed bank, a nursery, uh, that we would use in our restoration work. Actually, we have three or four nurseries around the country with um, 900 plus edible plants that we use in our restoration work. We use probably 2,000 plants overall, but 900 of them are edible in one form or another. Uh, and so we decided, uh, since these plants are for the most part perennial, uh, which means you don't have to till the soil every year mm-hmm. and release carbon and use a lot of additives to grow a food crop like pesticides, herbicides, chemical fertilizer. Uh, they grow without all of that. Uh, we decided to try to reintroduce some of these food products into the uh, modern American diet. Wow, cool. So, yeah, we started off by the first two products now that we've gotten approved to sell as food. And ironically, even though the Native American Indians use these products as part of their diet for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we have to go through the FDA and get them to be approved as generally recognized as safe. Uh, wow. The grass. Yeah, so we now have, we've started off with uh, two Native American grasses, which used to cover the Great Plains um, and grew throughout the United States, probably 50 out of the, 48 out of the 50 states. And they're both Native American rye grasses. They don't taste like rye, but they're in the rye family. Mm-hmm. And one is called uh, canadensis. It grows uh, near a, uh, the Canadian border up in the upper Midwest. Uh, and the other one is called virginicus. And uh, they produce a seed. From that seed, we can um, mill it and make a flour. And from that flour, we can make cookies and crackers and bread and tortillas and Pasta. We're starting off with a cookie, and it's called the climate cookie, and that'll be coming out in the first quarter of 2023. Oh, that's cool. Now, when you say that, so you, you're you working, who all are you working with? Because you're working with this, but then also you're also working with creating the food itself. Bake, I mean, you're not literally baking, but you're also working with the people who are making the food hey, themselves, right? right? <laughs> Got to create a lot of cookies to get a cookie that tastes right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, this is really, really cool. This is cool. And I was reading about it, and, and initially this it seems to me that this project was a, kind of started like all the way back in 1978, that, um, that the guy you're working with, John Curtis, no, no, I'm sorry, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm losing his name here, but anyway. Stephen Applebaum. Yeah, Stephen Applebaum, right. So he started working on this whole idea in 1978. Is that true? Uh, true. Uh, he's been in the restoration ecology business uh, even longer than me, about 40 years. Wow. In fact, my business bought his business about three years ago, two oh, years cool. ago. Cool. And that's how I got to know him. Uh-huh. Uh, and we both decided to uh, get out of uh, the restoration ecology business and focus on uh, regenerative agriculture using uh, our restoration ecology plants. Wow, that's very, very, very cool. So tell me more about it. I'm excited. I'm very excited. The big story is regenerative agriculture. That's what we should talk about. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> yeah, talk about well, it. There are a lot of people working on regenerative agriculture all across the country. It's uh, it's the next stage be, uh, that's beyond organic. It's organic plus, let's put it that way, in that you're using... Uh, plants that uh, are able to capture carbon rather than release carbon in the process of growing the plants uh, because they have deep root systems. Uh, the grain, for instance, that we plant, uh, we get a crop for eight years before we have to 
uh, plant, plant it again. Mm. Uh, so you're capturing immense amount of soil of carbon in the soil with the deep root system. So it's called bringing bringing legacy carbon back into the soil where it belongs, rather than plowing it up each year and, and uh, releasing carbon from the soil. Cool. Um, yeah. So it, it's so we're right now in the process of uh, recruiting farmers across the country. We're signing them up for an eight-year contract uh, in which we will buy all of the uh, uh, grain that they can produce, and we will also measure the carbon in their soil at the start of the contract. We'll measure the increase in the carbon in their soil over uh, each year, and we're going to generate uh, verifiable carbon credits wow. uh, for carbon capture. So we're going to be working with the farmer to buy their carbon as well as their uh, grain, and we're going to sell the carbon credits as well as uh, make uh, food out of the grain. Wow. That's cool. So like if a farmer hears this and says, whoa, I want to do this, how would they get in touch with you or, or get in touch with the program or how, what would they do? Email me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And give me your email address just so I can write this down and they can hear it. Elstrot at Mac.com. Okay. I'm giving this to millions of readers. I know that, but all listeners, but that's all right. Okay. Uh, E-L-S-T-R-O-T-T -T at M-A-C.com. And does somebody... Yeah. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, if I get an email from a farmer and they're interested, I'll put them in touch with our team that's, uh, that's uh, recruiting the farmers and signing them up and explaining how it all works. We provide the seed. We guarantee to buy your yield. Uh, it's a good program. That sounds like it. That's really, really cool. And are you working with specific sizes of farmers? Like, does it have to be a farm that's so big? Or, or I mean, I'm, no, no. We're, we're happy to, to sign you up for 10 acres, 50 acres, 500 acres. We've identified already 30 million acres in the United States where the, the uh, crop could grow. And the good news is you can grow it on marginal degraded land. Uh, it doesn't need a lot of water. Uh, it's going to build the soil back up so we can start with marginal soil to begin with. Uh, so it doesn't have to be the farmer's best land either. This is the first time in my whole life I've ever felt like planting anything ever <laughs> once in life. <laughs> well, I guess they're, they're in, in the minute we have before we take a break, the question is, it's hard to be a farmer these days. It's, it's a difficult, um, uh, road to, to oh. hoe. <laughs> yes. But, uh, what, in, what incentives is, do you give up, does farmer give up control of what they're going to plant if they sign an eight year contract with you? No, well, they're agreeing to plant uh, the seed we provide them, uh, and they're going to put the crop in the ground, and it's going to, uh, if they decide to abandon the program, they're certainly welcome to do so. They could plow, plow up the ryegrass, but why would they do that? They're getting a good yield and uh, selling the grain to us, and, and uh, we're also brokering their carbon credits. But no, this is a, we're not going to uh, obligate them to stay in the crop for eight years if they don't want to. Uh, we're giving the eight-year contract as a security for them to ensure that if they plant this, we will buy their yield for eight years. But what it's a, voluntary. What a great program, socially and every other way. Yeah. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with Nan and John right after these messages. I'm learning. Yeah. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Does the testimony before the January 6th committee give Democrats a chance in the midterms? And what happens if Republicans do take over the House and Senate? Join us when we hear the views of Josh Silver, executive chairman of the Northampton-based national organization Represent Us. Josh Silver will be our guest Thursday at 9 o'clock. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. 
The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. For contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. The nation's airlines are trying to get back to normal this week after hundreds of flights were canceled and thousands more were delayed over the long 4th of July weekend. Domestic airlines aren't the only ones struggling. China Eastern Airlines scrubbed 400 flights on Monday. Apple's iPhone 14 range is just two months away, and while leaks have revealed from battery capacity to potential price increases, one report says it will carry a new name. Supply chain analysis firm Omdia says the new device will be called the iPhone 14 Plus. The Wall Street Journal reports a slide in all manner of raw material prices from corn to copper is stirring hopes that a significant source of inflationary pressure might be starting to ease a bit. Even the price of oil has fallen by $14 a barrel, bringing down gasoline prices. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with me, Nan Peretti, and my good friend, John Elstrott, who it always makes me very happy to talk to. And we're talking about a whole new world of farming, which I think is really exciting, especially because we live in a very farming area of the country right here in Massachusetts. And Dan, you had a question. I did. I did. My question is, why is regenerative agriculture in need? What is happening to the agriculture farmland that makes this necessary? Uh there's a lot of information about regenerative agriculture uh, available uh, in video, on the internet. Uh, I, I would refer you to, uh, on Netflix, there's a documentary called Kiss the Ground. Uh, that'll give you a good introduction to what's going on in regenerative agriculture. Uh, Woody Harrelson's a narrator. It's, it's quite good. Kiss the Ground on Netflix. Uh, but there are a number of other uh, documentary sources available. Uh, on all the streaming channels about regenerative agriculture. And what it is, it's working with nature uh, and the cycles of nature uh, to grow food. So regenerative agriculture just doesn't involve uh, plants, it also involves animals. And a number of regenerative farms use a combination of uh, livestock and plants working together uh, to create a holistic, uh, healthy environment uh, for growing and, uh, and producing food. Uh, the, uh, with animals, they, they use uh, what's called uh, mobile paddocks. They move the animals, whether it's chickens or cows. They graze them in different parts of the pasture uh, and, uh, and with portable paddocks, and then they move the animals around. So once they've deposited their manure, uh, it gets worked into the soil, and then they plant crops, and they rotate crops rather than using uh, chemical fertilizers, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's a process that, that you learn, and it's uh, the way farming used to be done uh, before we had a, a chemical industrial farming. Uh, but there's a lot of science behind it. Uh, it produces uh, plants that are high and uh, have a high plant nutrient density that are much more nutritious for you than uh, plants grown conventionally. Uh, but this is a, an international movement not just the United States, uh, and it, though there's only probably 3 to 5% of the planet that's being farmed organically now, it is the future of farming. Uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, or your listeners have heard about the estimates uh, 
that are anywhere from 30 to 40 years of topsoil left in the world if we continue to farm with chemicals that we, the way we do and deplete the topsoil. Wow. This restores the soil. Uh, so we're going to be forced to move to this, whether we do it or not, the sooner we do it, the better. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you you wanted to talk, or you had you you're with a, the Applied Ecological Institute. Did you want to talk about that for a second? We only have a few minutes left, a couple minutes left. But did you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, I'll make it quick. It's what's called Adventure Design Studio. There are about fifty five plus of these around the world. We're part of a a global movement of, and, and basically it's it's like a business uh, accelerator, uh, but but more. It's uh, essentially where you work hands on with a venture from the very beginning. You nurture it with capital and human resources, and you bring it along, you vet it. Uh, if it looks good, you put more capital in. Eventually, if you've got a minimum viable product, you birth it out of the uh, design studio and into the, 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 the business world, and you raise additional capital and grow it. So uh, we've got uh, 20 different ventures right now in our venture design studio. We've birthed two of them, the first one of which is Climate Foods, which we just talked about. And uh, we've got a group of scientific advisors and uh, agricultural advisors uh, working with us to help us vet these ventures. We've got a network of entrepreneurs who match up the entrepreneurs with, with the ideas, or they come with their ideas of their own. But everything we do in our venture design studio is driven by what we call ecological intelligence, which is working hand-in-hand uh, -hand with nature in a harmonious way, because nature knows what to do uh, to take care of itself. And nature will feed us if we work with it and feed us in a healthy way. And it's so interesting. It's such a novel concept in such an old world. It's so interesting. It's so very interesting. And so if anybody is interested in this, it is uh, email John Elstrott at E-L-S-T-R-O-T-T -T at Mac.com. Um, and John, you're also, we only have a couple of seconds left, but and people also can invest in this whole project, right? Can they just email you too if they're interested in investing? Yes, uh, we'll be glad if you're interested, if you're a qualified investor. A qualified uh, investor. Uh, and you can invest, you know, fifty thousand dollars or more. Uh -huh. uh, we'd be happy to talk to you. Okay, I'll uh, be right on that, John. We'll, uh, we'll pitch you on the and take you on a Zoom call. <laughs> that is so cool. Thank you so much, Nan. I want to thank you so much for bringing John to our attention. I think that um, we uh, of the half hour we just spent. I think I got um, five hundred questions I would like to have answered because every sentence. Uh, engenders a, a new. I love how you're using, as Nan said, old concepts as new concepts to help both our ecology and our diet. Right. It's really fabulous. Right. Yeah. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Nan, thank oh, you so much. This was a. Go ahead, John. Hello for New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> Hello, right. New Yay. Orleans. Thank you, John. Nan, thank you. You've done it again. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Everybody have a good evening. Join us tomorrow on the afternoon bus, 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Happy talk. Keep talking. Happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the afternoon you buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 5.30.